Thank you. Turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Luke chapter 14. I want to talk to you today about counting the cost. When we look to the teachings of Jesus, we can find there all kinds of encouraging messages. How many have been encouraged by the messages of Jesus in the Bible? I mean, messages to love your neighbor as yourself, to forgive. How many have been encouraged by the message of forgiveness? Just that alone can change your life. How about the encouragement that comes from knowing that he'll never leave you or or forsake you and that he, the son, brings you into relationship with the father? How many have been encouraged by that? Amen. When we look to the scriptures, we find an abundance of encouragement. There should never be a reason as a Christian that we feel discouraged. We should always be encouraged, infused, and invigorated with courage. But was Jesus just a walking meme of encouragement? Is that all he was? Was he the equivalent of an Oprah Winfrey? And and let me just tell you, I'm praying for a lot of these uh, people right now in the media who are getting exposed like Ellen. There's some things possibly with with Oprah as well. A lot of these leaders who you have looked up to, let's just talk about Ellen because it's already coming out on her. And people have said, well, look how happy she is. How can she be really, you know, a person that would go to hell, so forth and so on. And we see that behind the scenes she's miserable. She treats people miserable. She's really a a diva, you know, has no love and respect for others. And, and, of course, there's all these other things that are being exposed about her, which I don't have time to get into. But my point is, is that so often we just think Jesus is like Ellen. He's going to play some music. He's going to come on and dance a little bit, give out some free stuff, and then just, you know, throw out some encouragement. I'll never leave you nor forsake you. Okay, you guys like that? Well, I got another one. Your heavenly Father loves you, and he has a mansion for you. Okay, listen, I got another one. He forgives you. He's going to change your life. And we just think that's what Jesus is. And he goes, okay, great. Thanks for coming. We'll see you next time. We miss the fullness of Jesus when all we see is Jesus giving the encouraging side of the gospel. The gospel 100% is encouraging. And that's why I asked you at the beginning, how many of you have been encouraged by Jesus? I'm encouraged by Jesus every day when I read his words. They are powerful. I mean, I just think of more as I'm just, just reminded of it. He said, I'm the good shepherd. I lay down my life for the sheep. How many of you have ever felt like a lost sheep? And that just feels good to know Jesus got your back. He'll leave the 99 to go and get the one. I mean, if I was just preaching on encouragement, honestly, I could preach 365. There's a lot there. But if we only, and listen to me, I'm saying only speak on the encouragement, then we are selling Jesus's message short. We are not giving the full remedy of the gospel. It's like you're hearing a lot about hydroxychloroquine, and it has to be mixed with zinc and other things. And so if you just take one without the other, The remedy is not as potent. It's not as powerful. And Jesus came full of grace, the Bible says. You love how I threw that in there, by the way. Anyways, they've given these doctors a hard time, but I just threw that in here on a Sunday morning. Um, But but listen, it's, it's not just that Jesus came full of grace. He also came full of what? Truth. Those who know their Bible are sitting on this side today. I'm going to look at all of you here. He came full of grace and 
Truth. Thank you. You're helping them today, Pastor Lauren. Thank you. He didn't just come full of grace. He didn't just come full of a father's love that will always make you feel warm on the inside. He also came with some hard-hitting truths. He said, I'm the way. He said, I'm the truth. I'm the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. That's a hard-hitting truth. He then just said in that one sentence, he literally, not just metaphorically. I've had some Hindu friends as we debate together, and I, and I love them, and I treat them as I would want to be treated. Trust me, I'm a good friend to those of other religions. But with my Hindu friends, they try to say that's just metaphorically. That Jesus just represents the way. Jesus just represents the truth. Jesus just represents the life. And Krishna could say the same thing, and Buddha could say the same thing. And I say, no, 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 no. Jesus was very clear in his words. He said he's the way, the truth, and the life. And then he qualified it. Nobody, no one comes to the Father except by me. So that's a hard-hitting truth. Now, if that is true, which we believe it is, then it is no more hateful to tell a Muslim or a Hindu that than it is to tell your child that 2 plus 2 doesn't equal 5. It is not hateful to correct error with truth. It is not hateful for me to say to them, Muhammad, Krishna, Buddha are another way. And so Jesus came with hard-hitting truths. He said things like this, unless... You be born again, you shall not inherit the kingdom of God. And this is where we get into fights with our Roman Catholic, Greek Orthodox friends and families who we know they believe in the triune God like us. They believe in the virgin birth of Jesus. They have an understanding of respect for the commandments of God on morality. We would agree almost line upon line upon line. But yet... They have substituted the spiritual rebirth that Christ mandated for salvation with their religious traditions. And if we were creating religious traditions, we could do the same thing here. We could create our own sacraments. We could say the 101 discipleship program, that's a sacrament you have to go through to be in good standing with God. You're, you're not sure yet if you're going to reach heaven. You might trip up and go to purgatory, but you have to perform this sacrament. This gives you a better foot coming into the eternal world. You have to do the second sacrament, the 201. How many know that would be a way of us manipulating some people to get more into our discipleship? You have to do this, 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 and this, and this, and this, and this, and this, and then maybe at the end of the day, when you face God on judgment, you might be accepted into heaven. But is that what Jesus hit, uh, taught? No, he hit with the hard truth. He said, except you be born again. You cannot. You cannot. Who is he talking to, by the way? Is he talking to someone like Ellen who does not serve Christ, lives a lesbian lifestyle? Is he talking to someone that's like, uh, like Hitler, that's a, you know, a racist and a, you know, a world dictator? No, he is talking to a religious leader who has literally done all the kinds of things religious people do. In other words, he's talking to somebody that's probably a better a religious person than your Catholic friend, your Jewish friend, your Orthodox friend. 
And he says to Nicodemus, that religious Jewish leader, he says, unless you are born again, you cannot. You cannot. Nicodemus, I'm not talking about the one selling their body on the corner. I'm not talking about those over here that live a perverse lifestyle. I'm not talking about criminals. Nicodemus, I'm talking directly to you. You cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. You cannot see it. You cannot enter into it. You have nothing to do with it. And then in John 3, 16, just a few verses afterward, he said this, that God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. But what does 17 and 18 go on to say? Just put it up for us, dear brother. We always quote 16, which is very powerful. It reminds us of God's love. But the following verses teach us that by default we're not good people, but by default we're condemned. Look at verse 17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only son. So everybody think of it. This is a hard-hitting truth. Do we come into the world kind of good, and then over time it's only a few bad people that get condemned? Or do we all start off condemned, and then only a few choose the path of salvation? See, which, which way you see it is how you're going to see Jesus. And this is a hard-hitting truth because a lot of people think, oh, that's unfair. How could God allow us to be bored in a condemned state? That goes back to Adam and Eve and to God giving them the representative power over the human race. In other words, what they did was going to be the decision for us all. And when they chose sin, sin became the default of our race. The human race became the default of our nature. So as I like to say it, it's like this. Through Adam, we all became sinners. Through Christ, we all become saints. Who are you with? Are you identifying with Adam and the human race separated from God? Or are you identifying with Jesus, the perfect God-man, the perfect human, who died and rose again for the forgiveness of our sins? Somebody say hard-hitting truths. Look at your neighbor and say that was just the first introduction. I've got to work this up. Luke chapter 14, verse 25. Now, this is what I want to say before we read it. So not only do we receive encouragement from Jesus, we also receive hard-hitting truth. Now, before I read this, I want to ask you a question. What are most churches focusing on today? Most of them. Come on, let's just be honest. What are most preachers focusing on today? The love and grace, encouragement. Thank you for helping a preacher. Why? Because as we mentioned last week, pragmatically, it seems to work better. They say things like this. Well, if you want to attract people, use honey, not vinegar. Right? If you want to have friends, you must show yourself friendly. They point to that scripture in Proverbs. And then they begin to say things like, well, can't everybody, uh, not everybody can take this. Is everybody ready for this? No. And if they can't take those kind of commands, you got to ease them on into it. You got to go easy with people. And so now what begins to happen and has happened in the church is that when people actually hear the ultimatums of Jesus, they think they're unchristlike. That that somehow when I project those ideas, when I teach that as a preacher who wants to preach the fullness of the gospel, people then look at me like I'm crazy and that I'm unchristlike. The problem is you can't be more Christ than Christ himself. 
So if you think you got a better way than Christ, then you're in trouble. And in, a, in reality, you're actually not serving the real Christ. You're serving an antichrist. You ever watch these superhero movies where they always end up having some kind of a DNA taken from them, and then there's like an anti-version of them, a villain version of them, the bad Batman, the bad Spider-Man, the bad Superman, etc. This is literally what we're doing to Jesus. This is the anti-Jesus. Being involved with an antichrist does not always mean you literally worship a cult leader or that you are denying outwardly the Bible and so forth. When John the Revelator was writing in his first epistle about the spirit of the antichrist, he actually didn't include any of those sci-fi details. We know that there's going to be a lot of things that look sci-fi in the end times, and we know there's cult leaders who claim to be Jesus and their false Christ, etc. But when John wrote in his epistle, 1 John, that there are many antichrists, and then he begins to describe what they do, he didn't say, well, they drink blood, you know, they wear, uh, you know, horns on their head and all of those things. That's what Beyonce does, right? No, half kid, wearing horns on her head, though. And you know, it's no coincidence she came out with black as king after Kanye came out with Jesus as king. Y'all better get woke on that. Okay, but I, I got to keep talking about other things next time. Amen. Amen. He said, talk about it. I got to keep moving, though. Amen. I love you, though. That was a good one. Okay, but, but when we think about it, we're like, oh, Antichrist means they're satanic. They're like this. No, when he describes the Antichrist, what does he say? He says, they deny the Father and the Son. So what does that mean? Doctrinal teachings, doctrinal teachings can affect how you see Jesus. If you don't understand the doctrine of Jesus being God's son manifested in the flesh, being fully God and fully human, and then dying on the cross, etc., you don't have the right Jesus. Why do I say all of that? I say that because today I think what a lot of people are hooping and hollering about and going to church worshiping is actually an anti-Jesus. Because when they get confronted with the real Jesus, the Jesus of the Bible, it freaks them out. That's why even in a church like this where we seem to be pretty radical, we get the branches and the bad fruit shooken out all the time. And you might think to yourself, Pastor, I don't see anybody ever leaving here offended. I came already offended knowing that you believed such and such and God had to deal with me. Or I came looking for a church that I know was going to step on my toes or my culture's toes. But yeah, it happens. It could even happen to me. Why? Because the gospel becomes offensive when our hearts, is not, our hearts are not right. And at any time when your heart is not right, you and I have the potential of becoming a Judas and then wanting Jesus to be a different Jesus. And so we have to guard our hearts from worshiping a Jesus that's not the real Jesus. A Jesus that's the making of our own imaginations that we feel fits in better with Jack Black, Bill Maher, CNN, and everybody else that wants a piece of our Jesus. This is not a buffet-style Jesus where there's something for everyone. And you can kind of potato-head Jesus and put a little bit into Jesus that you want to see put into him. 
Jesus is the complete package all by himself, and the Word of God describes him as being glorious and worth following and not only worth living for but also worth dying for. Are you ready for Luke chapter 14, verse 25? Because there were large crowds, come on, traveling with Jesus. He knew after healing and feeding and all of that, there would be large crowds. And turning to them, he said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Right here, some of you are amen and with too much happiness in your heart. I've been ready to hate my brother. I've been ready to hate my wife. I've been ready to hate my husband. I've been ready to hate somebody. You're amen and too happy right now. But the truth is, that's shocking. Is it not shocking to hear Jesus say that? The large crowds are there. Why? Because he's been encouraging. He's been feeding. He's been healing. He's been tapping the children on the heads and blessing them. And then he turns around instead of sashaying, instead of turning around having a party with them, he turns to them and he says, if you don't hate these folks, you can't be my disciple. You can't. It's impossible to be a disciple of Christ and not hate. See, a part of love includes hate. That's why when we talk to people about the problem of evil, if they don't have a God, there is no problem with evil because there's no such thing. I'm going to say that again. When you talk to people who say, I can't believe in God because of evil, you have just met an Oompa Loompa who does not understand logic. They are in self-contradiction. If there is no God, there is no standard for good and evil. Therefore, the problem evaporates. You can eat your neighbor if you want. They're just meat and protein. The meek become meat. The, the, the weak become meat for the strong, in other words. And so what we see here is that love includes hate. If I say I love this, then what does that mean? I'm excluding the things I don't love when I say I love this. Now, not everything you exclude means you hate. I love chocolate chip cookie ice cream, but that doesn't mean uh, I love chocolate chip cookie dough ice cream, but that doesn't mean that I hate cookies and cream. It just means I love less. But I hate some stuff that looks like ice cream. I don't know if you've ever tried to have diet ice cream. I'm not talking about yogurt, but I'm talking about like some diet ice cream where they try to put some things together and then call it ice cream. Some people have tried to do that. I just don't like that stuff, okay? Vegan ice cream, thank you. Yeah, because they don't use real milk, right? Okay, we'll pray for you. Lord, help her. But that's, that's the truth. People like it. I don't like it. They don't use real milk. What are you thinking? This is a problem. But, but there's people who like it. But follow me here. When Jesus said, hey, some people want to take off the word here and just say he meant love less. Love less. No, no, no. He literally meant hate. It's not just, he says, I want you to love me so much as, you know, as you would love something like chocolate chip cookie dough and then love your family after me and like how you would like cookies and cream or vegan ice cream or whatever. No, he's, he's not saying love less. People have tried to make his words mean something that they don't to take away the power here of what he's teaching. He is actually saying hate, actual hate. And what actual hate means, disgust, Dislike, want nothing to do with. 
Now at this moment, if that is true, the first thing that comes into our minds is this must be a contradiction. Because he honored the Ten Commandments that teach us to love and honor our parents. We also know that he taught us to love ourselves because he says, love your neighbor as yourself. So if you don't know how to have self-love, how can you give somebody else love? So is there now a contradiction? And also in the scriptures, it talks about husbands loving their wife. And of course, we're supposed to love our children. So is there a contradiction? No, it's a both and. I love God and my wife and children and all of these things, but I also hate my wife and children, my own life, and all of the things he mentioned. Is it a contradiction? No, it's a both and. Why? Because I hate any person that has an agenda, including myself, that is outside of the will of God. I don't hate them for a superficial level or as in the way the Bible says to love and forgive and don't hold again. No, I'm not talking about that. I'm saying if my father today was to forbid me to come to Christ or to be in church or to serve God or to be a disciple, I would hate his role as a father in my life. I would say, Father, I hate everything you stand for right now because you are against me serving God. It says even your own life, that if your own temptations try to draw you away from Christ, you are to hate them and hate everything about who you would be without Christ. So that means you're supposed to not look back on the things you used to do as a sinner, as the good old days. You're to look back and say, I hate that person for what they did. Not that I don't love them as a creature of God or as a, as a way that I can love the human race. No, I hate the values, the way that they are. Somebody might want to summarize like this, to love the person but to hate the sin. That would be more closer to what Jesus is saying here. But we have to understand how serious he is here because if we miss it, we'll think while trying to do good for our family, trying to do good for our brothers and sisters, that we can actually compromise. And we are supposed to understand the power of that word hate because there is zero room for compromise when it comes to Jesus, no matter who the author of that compromise is. So let's say you're married to someone. They go, I don't want to go all in for Jesus. You are not to compromise your faith for your spouse. You are to go full in for Jesus. You are to go all in for Jesus and say to them, you cannot stop me from serving Jesus. You will not manipulate me with this relationship. Now, most of us in this culture, up until this point, Probably never had to really do this. So we were able to see in the command here something that would be relevant to somebody else but not to us. We would understand if my mom ever wanted me to stop serving God, then maybe I would have to deal with that. Or if, you know, someone in my family. But most of us have grown up in an era that when we go to church, we make moms and dads happy. When we go to church, we make our spouses happy. When we bring our children to church, we make them happy. They like Sunday school and all of these things. But what we have have failed to understand is that this was always going on in a different place. For example, when we have Mother's Day services and the dear mothers bring their children with them, sometimes they're adult children, and they say, this is all that I've asked, is that you would come to church with me on Mother's Day. That's, that's something that we love. But in China, in China, 
Your mother wants you to go with her to the Buddhist temple on Mother's Day. Do you hate that? Do you hate that your mother's trying to manipulate you to worship a false god? Because the same thing that we call sentimentality, to be sentimental, that kind of low love or that kind of superficial allegiance can actually be turned to anything and everything. Your brother's a homosexual, has now gotten engaged, and wants to get married. Can you come and support me? I would love for you to be there. And then the other Christian family members, maybe your backslidden sister or your backslidden brother, they come and they're told by that brother, you're so loving. I just appreciate you. That meant so much to me. Not like so-and-so. You see, what Jesus is saying is you have to be ready to be put in those places. It doesn't mean that we wish harm for them. It doesn't mean that we don't love them in a greater sense of wanting God's best for them. It just simply means that we hate whatever they stand for that is coming against us and our Lord. And Jesus said, if you don't do that, you cannot be my disciple. And the example that I've given over this passage before is just imagine you're on a cliff, you are rock climbing, and as you are there, you're hanging on, and you're just doing your best to go to the next level, and you're just putting everything you have into it. At that moment, could your mother hang on to you and you still climb? Could your father hang on to you and you still climb? Could your sister, your brother, could your own children hold on to you and still allow you to climb? No, because the journey ahead of you, it takes all of you. You have nothing left. You have nothing left. Are you listening to me? It is between you and that mountain at that point. And Christianity is all or nothing. And if you haven't given God everything and you're holding back a little bit for your culture or for, you know, your national pride or you're holding back a little bit for your sexuality or you're holding back a little bit for your wayla and you're holding back a little bit, God says, you can't. It, it won't work. And so he puts right in there, he says, the only way this works is if you carry the instrument of death everywhere you go, the cross. Because everywhere you go, you die, and all your relationships die, and so everything is dead to you except what is alive in Christ. Now, that doesn't mean we abandon our wife and kids. That doesn't mean we abandon our obligations. But it's talking about how you view yourself in this world. Because if all you're doing is coming to Metro Praise International because we've got some children's programs for your kids, that's going to get old once persecution comes. That's not going to be enough. If all you're doing is coming because someone invited you and that person's cool and you guys like hanging out here, that's not going to be enough. So if all you're doing is something for a temporary benefit, it won't be enough. Jesus said, you have to hate anything that gets in the way of you serving Jesus. These precious, precious people... These precious people cannot be what you serve Jesus for. I know a lot of people find the nobility in doing things for others, and that is true, a self-sacrificing life. I work to provide. I do this for my kids. We get that. 
There is nobility. There is something righteous in that. But when it comes to serving your creator, there is nothing that you can serve your creator for. There is nothing that you can put before your creator as if this is the reason why I serve you. I serve you so that I have a better life with my family. I serve you for these different reasons. No, it can only be I serve you because you are worthy. You are worthy. Holy, holy, holy is the Lamb of God. Only the worthiness of God is why we serve him. Not by tradition, not by family. We serve him because he's Worth it. That's what worthy means. Amen? Let's keep going. Verse 28. He's now going to give us two examples of this to make it plain. He goes, suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? For if you lay the foundation and are not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule you, saying this person began to build and wasn't able to finish. See, this is why I believe you can backslide in Christianity. He gives us the exact illustration of backsliding. The building that you're building is your life. This is your walk with the Lord. And it's not by your works. It's by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's by grace that you are saved through faith. It's by grace you lay the foundation. It's by grace that he builds up the different rooms. It's all by grace. But Christ is teaching us as you came into grace, as you came into the building, uh, to the builder in a relationship to build your life, you can come out of it and leave it half done. And I call this the half-baked cake syndrome. And I see it all the time, not only just in visitors or new people to the church, but I also see it in pastors and leaders where you can look at their life And there's a beautiful foundation. They tell you their testimony about how they got saved. And it's just amazing, just covered in the grace and the strength and the power of God. And then you you see them grow and build, and the Lord starts to add rooms into their lives, these rooms to contain their blessings, these relationships and callings and these missions and services the Lord has them do, whether it's in church or outside of church, in the community, on their job. And, And you're seeing this tower. You're seeing this large like like tower being built and it's called their life and it displays the goodness of God. And then you'll see them for some reason walk away. Say, this is not what I want to build anymore. I want to walk away. I want to build another marriage. I want to build a different religion. I want to build a different set of values. I don't value this anymore. I don't see the beauty in Christ alone. I don't see the beauty in one man and one woman to death do us part. I don't see the beauty in putting God before everything. I don't see the beauty in that anymore. And they walk away. And the Bible says, rightly so, people ridicule them. And say, what happened? I thought you were going to church. What happened? I thought you were a Christian. I remember one time when I was living for God as a young person, I said goodbye to all of my friends and started going to church, but then I backslid, and I just have this memory. It's a silly memory, but I was shooting craps with them, and as I was shooting craps with the 40, I know it sounds funny. Imagine me shooting craps with the 40, but I've been around, y'all. So in Fort Wayne, and I was losing. Listen, I was losing, and it got to the point where I had a beanie on, 
I always tried to be like Cypress Hill, if anybody remembers those guys. So I would have a beanie on. And I remember taking off my beanie. And I threw it down and I said, how much will you give me for this? God is my witness. It was the same day I quit on church. I, I was a supposed to be a part of the youth group team to reach my high school. They chose a different leader other than me. I got so offended, and I said, I'll show you. And I went out with my friends, got a 40, was shooting crabs, lost everything until all I had was my beanie. And they looked at me, and they said, I thought you were a Christian, man. What's wrong with you? What changed? Now, of course, then they'll accept you back in because they don't want to feel convicted. But there will be that ridicule. What changed? Why don't you want to go hard for God anymore? Because they recognize that you were different than them during those times. And Jesus is saying to us, don't look at the present day troubles. Look at what he's building and what he's going to complete in your life. As the old timers used to say, don't let your present circumstances dictate your identity. God is building something in your life. Don't quit. The next example that he gives, he says, or suppose a king was about ready to go out to war against another king. Won't he first sit down and consider whether he's able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000 men? If he is not able, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off, and he'll ask for terms of peace. In the same way, those, now look at this, he says, in the same way. Those of you who do not give up, how many things? Come on, how many things? Everything. You cannot be my disciple. And so that's why we can understand the word hate towards these relationships because what it means is that we hate anything that tries to become a thing between us and God because we are willing to give up everything. Are you listening to me? I hate anything that tries to be a thing between me and God. I'm willing to give up everything. Everything. So anything that is getting between us and God, we are literally, once again, there is a parable here, but get the literal application. The literal application is that we are to look at anything that gets between us and God as an enemy against our soul, coming to war against us and coming to conquer and to take us without mercy. And is that not what the devil is? A thief that comes to steal, kill, and destroy? You'll see him first steal the word out of your heart. He'll start to steal the truth of God's word just like the slithery serpent that he is comes sissing along and he'll and he'll say, did God really say? Did God really say this? And so he'll steal the word of God and then he wants to kill your purpose, kill these things that God has put into your life and then does, does he stop there at just lying and stealing and taking things from you? No, he wants to destroy you in eternal damnation and hellfire. And so Jesus, understanding what is at stake, which is our soul, he says to us, listen, you have to be willing to give up everything because otherwise you cannot be my disciple. Now do you understand why I use that example of rock climbing? Because anything on you other than Christ while you're climbing will be your downfall. No matter how noble it seems, no matter how noble it will seem to those around you or how disrespectful it will look when you don't value that thing as they do. Well, it's just your brother's wedding. 
I mean, can't you just come and sit down and support them? It's only 45 minutes. You know, your brother's going to your church services. Your brother's going to your thing. After all, he's your brother. See, when you say no to the homosexual wedding, because didn't they used to say if there's anyone here that objects to this, speak now or forever hold your peace? Could you rightly be a witness? Because haven't you heard people say, among all the witnesses here, we now pronounce you man and woman, you know, et cetera. Could you be a witness of something there without having an objection to that? You couldn't, not in a clear conscience. And so they will see everything you're calling love as hate. And everything that you're hating, they're going to love. Do you understand what the world is doing now? Everything that you're doing right now out of love, they consider hate. They consider it hateful that you come to a church like this. They consider it hateful that you believe Jesus is the only way. They consider it hateful that you believe in an eternal damnation. And they consider love everything that you're against right now. It's love. And God is speaking to us. And he is telling us that we have to be able to give up everything. Look at the last example he gives us, salt. He says is good. How many like some salt on your food? Too much? I know it's not good for you. But how many like some spices, some cayenne pepper, some fayaya? Come on, spice it up. Every culture here I know likes it like that, except the gringo culture. I see some Anglos in here. We'll make you blush and sweat a little bit at the barbecue, but come on with us. I've got adopted into the Cajun culture, and now the Cajun and the Latino culture remind me so much of each other. I call myself the, the raging Cajun Latino, okay? But I love salzone. I love cayenne pepper. I love hot sauce. But it's talking, Jesus is talking here that if salt has lost its saltiness, if it's no longer good for that purpose, how can it be made salty again? It's neither fit for the soil nor for the manure pile. It is thrown out. Whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. I had to go to the commentaries and, and understand why were they even throwing salt on manure to begin with? What y'all doing back in those times, you know? But it was a part of them in their agricultural society to use manure as fertilizer, which is still popular today. And the salt, when it had the iodine in it, would be as a preservative to the different biological things that can happen in the manure so instead of creating other kinds of uh, things in manure, the salt would help just allow it to remain as a fertilizer and not things like, you know, bacteria would grow in and so forth. And so literally, Jesus, the same one that said, I leave the 99 for the one, says now to that person, hey, I rescued you. I got you, adulterous woman, from turning tricks. I, I got you out of this mess of being a sinner. I've got you out. He now turns to them and says, if you don't follow me to the end, you're not even worth throwing onto a pile of crap. That's how worthless you'll be. 
Because, you know, we come as that, as that one. I know Jesus came and got me from shooting dice and, you know, with a 40 doing all of that. I know Jesus came and got me. And when I came, he put a nice robe of righteousness on me, you know. And I felt good to be in church and to be washed and to be clean. And it felt good to have a friend that sticks closer than a brother. But I can tell you, he has spoke this to me. Joe, if you leave, if you go back to that, you're not even worth dung anymore. You will be cast into a fire of eternal torment. And we look at that and we go, Jesus, how could you ever say that to somebody? They won't even have enough value to be put on manure? How could your creation go from being the apple of your high, the splendor of your glory, the reflection of your image greater than that of even angels? to now not even being worth sprinkled on manure. Why? Because God created us to be like him, but Satan has come to make us like him. And we have a choice. We can either be like God or we can be like devils. And if we turn our back on our creator, we have no value, no worth in his kingdom. Bill Gates richest man in the world, to the greatest people who have done charity, to all of the religious leaders like Mahatma Gandhi and other political figures, if they have not built their life upon the foundation of Christ and let him complete them and make them and mold them who he wants them to be, they will be cast into the lake of fire with the devil and his angels. Now, do you know why they crucified him? <laughs> you don't crucify somebody just saying he loves you all the time. Could you imagine now nudging your neighbor going, hey, I thought we were just getting free food. What is he talking about now? <laughs> he, did, he just, did he just say what I thought he said? That if I don't follow him, I'm not even worth manure? Did I just hear him tell me that I need to hate my mother as she is a worshiper of Zeus, that's my culture. How dare he speak of my culture that way. We're Zeus worshipers. Anybody watch the movie Gladiator? Had his little statues and idols. Dies a heroic death that always makes me cry. But his last moments would not be his hands running through the grain fields coming to his children. The Bible story ends with the gladiator entering into eternal darkness forevermore. He was against God under his wrath. And the God who offered him forgiveness and salvation, he would not bow his knee to. So no matter how heroic he was to Rome, the gladiator, the fictional character, if you're tracking with me, is deserving of hell and damnation. And without Christ, that's where he goes. So in our minds, Jesus is flipping it all around. He's not making us uh, judgmental preachers that say, y'all going to hell. You know, we're not supposed to be like that. But we are supposed to be disciples that have forsaken hell to see heaven come to earth and that we've given up everything for Christ to be our everything and that we will be the salt of the earth and the light of the world because he's worth it. And we are to be the ones that have the ears 
so that we can hear. Vinny, would you come please and close? And I know it may not be the kind of shouting message you came to church for, but I hope it will be one that you will live for Jesus with. Because this speaks to my heart, counting the cost. As we look to the end of the message, I want us to count the cost. Count the cost. Have you counted it? Richard Warmbrand said it like this. He said, there are those who sincerely believe in Jesus, and then there are others who sincerely believe that they believe in Jesus. And you only know the real ones from the fake ones when the points of diversity come, decision come, when the points of persecution come. There are those of you here, and I don't mean this as any slight, but there are some of you here that might just sincerely believe that you believe, but you're not really believing. You're doing some kind of a mental ascent to Christ. Like, I believe this is for me to get better things out of life, and so I want to believe in that. I want to believe that I get to go to heaven. I want to make my family happy. I want to be a good person. And Christ is saying to us, in every possible, confrontive, bold way, that's not how Christianity works. Christianity, unlike every other religion, does not start with you. It starts with God. And the thing that you do is deny you. You don't work harder for Allah. You don't start praying towards Mecca. You don't start changing your diet to become a vegan, doing the crooked chicken, and now having a belief in karma to get rid of all your bad deeds. You don't start going to Father Tom, confessing your naughty secrets in a closet to him who himself has naughty secrets. Are you listening? This is not about your sacramental duties of religion. This is a death march. This is you carrying the cross, going, it's not about me. It's not about my mother. It's not about my father. It's not about my wife. It's not about my kids. This is about Jesus. To Jesus be the glory in my life. To Jesus be the glory in my family. To Jesus be the glory on my job. To Jesus be the glory. To Jesus be the glory. It's about Jesus. Jesus when I rise. Jesus when I work. Jesus when I lay my head down at night. Jesus. 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 It's all about you, Lord. Jesus. Jesus. Well, what if they make fun of you? Jesus loves me. This I know. What if you lose your friends and family? Jesus will never leave me nor forsake me. What if your loved ones die? Jesus never dies. Jesus. Would you stand up with me? Give him a hand clap of praise and a shout of glory. Hallelujah. Say his name. Jesus. 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 You're worth it all today, God. Would you look at your hearts as we're preaching today's word? Do you want your friends and family to get saved? Then show them what it looks like when you're saved. Do you want your children to serve the Lord? Then show them what it looks like for a parent to serve the Lord. Somebody has to be the first. Somebody has to be the one to 
Give it all to Jesus. A few moments, look at your hearts. If you're here today and you've never given it all to Jesus, will you do it right now and just say, Jesus, I surrender all. Band, would you come up here and prepare to sing that song, I surrender all. Surrender all if you've never been a Christian before. Confess Jesus as your Lord and confess your sins. Say, Jesus, you're the Lord of my life. I welcome you into my heart and forgive me for all the things I've done as I've served another Lord. Me, myself, and I, the master of the devil and the satanic kingdom, forgive me, forgive me. You're my Lord. You're my God. The Bible says today you'll be forgiven. And for those of us here who are already Christians, would you just right now look at your heart and see if there's anything that you're walking away from, you're compromising, because the cost seems too great. You're, you're having to pay a price that you think is too high for Jesus. Would you look at your heart and just repent of that and say, Lord, I surrender it to you. I surrender my marriage to you. Somebody just posted on my Facebook today, they're coming to the second service. I'm bringing with me a brother who is, his wife said, I'm going to leave with the four kids if you keep going this way with Jesus. Come on, don't give up, don't give up. You may not be in that exact situation, but you might feel like you're you know, going to lose your family or lose your job for Jesus. I'm going to tell you today, he's worth it all. And he'll never let his children beg for bread. He'll take care of you a few moments, few moments. Jesus, it's all about you and our families and lives. As we're all praying, maybe for one last prayer today, as the altar workers come, they'll be here to pray for anybody, but I want to ask them to come for this specific thing, even as we're singing, if this is you. If you would say, I just need some encouragement today to go all in on this, we want to pray for you as a Christian because some of you may have decisions to make moving forward. We don't know what the culture is going to do. It can definitely get much, much worse. And I want to have these prayer workers up here to give you encouragement today because it is true he encourages us. It is true that all of those promises are yes and amen in Christ. But now you understand their context. A few moments, keep praying as I'm just speaking over some. The context of I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me is while they're nailing you to that cross that you've been carrying and they're going to crucify you. It's while they're spitting on you, taking your property. That's when you shout it out, not just so you can get an A on a test or to get, you know, a raise on your job. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. No, that was the cry of the martyrs. You can take my life, you can take my property, but I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Come on, come on, a few more moments, a few more moments before we sing this out. Pray, and then we'll dismiss in just a moment, but don't leave until we dismiss formally because I sense God's moving. Keep praying as the band begins to sing. All to Jesus. If you need prayer, come on down. Especially if you need encouragement. You're not alone today. We'll respect your space as much as you need it today. But don't leave without prayer.